BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So, John, you're like, I almost don't even know how to introduce you because you're like the most interesting man in the universe in the in the tech world and I'm sure in other worlds. So, but I'll just start off saying John McAfee, your last name, of course, is famous to everyone who owns a, a computer. Uh, McAfee Associates uh, is that, you know, has until recently uh, been that annoying software that is constantly trying to protect my computer from uh, virus software was bought by Intel for almost $8 billion. But meanwhile, you've done long after you left McAfee, you're, you've been like on international police chases. You've started another security company. I mean, what did you do yesterday? I'm going to ask the most bland question of all to start off with. Like what, what did you do with your time yesterday? Okay. Well, yesterday was not, was not a bland day. It was the, the, the day that I published, uh, the, uh, my, um, conclusions that Ashley Madison was by a woman, which was, uh, I think a mistake missing the woman part. I, I got more heck from, um, uh, being politically incorrect than, than anything else yesterday. So I was on the phone all day with time magazine and Forbes and, and, and others, but that's not a typical day for me. A typical day is, is a quiet day spent at home with my wife, uh, while I'm on the computer doing, you know, hacking, hacking sorts of things, finding out what people are doing. Uh, I'm not talking about in a black hat way. I'm talking about, uh, you know, working for companies as a security consultant um, uh, or just out of my own interest, as with the Ashley Madison hack, of finding out who could possibly have done it. And and what do you think of the Ashley Madison hack? I mean, not that I, I didn't even intend to really ask about this, but like, why would somebody um, hack Ashley Madison to, to what purpose other than just like maybe, you know, blackmail or extortion or whatever? Like, what, what's up with that? Well, first of all, it was not a hack. It was an inside job uh, done, uh, and I can prove it almost conclusively, done by a very angry female worker in the IT department. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, it can't possibly have been an outside job because of the breadth of data that was taken from every single department uh, that would, would have required an outside hacker as much time and trouble to get into as into the main database. I mean, things like um, uh, organization charts, uh, the, the office layout plans that would only exist either in, in maintenance or, or some, you know, cleaning division. Um, so it, it was it was clearly not uh, an outside hack, but an inside job where, where the data could easily be easily have been uh, 
access through guile or deception. Um, so that part was clear. The woman, the woman part was clear, I think, from the, um, from the writing of the two manifestos that came from the dump that the hackers released. Uh, so it was not a hacking group. There, there is no such group uh, as uh, the hacking group mentioned. It was a single person. It was a woman. I'm 100% certain of it. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it was a politically incorrect thing to state that uh, I, it was a woman who did it based on the, uh, the, the terminology and tone of the text. So, if, you, um, if you were to go into Ashley Madison right now, into the company, would you be able to figure out who did it? No, but I could tell you who could. Uh, the, the, uh, the, most, uh, the person that has the most vitriolic comments against them is the uh, vice president of uh, information technology. Um, that person, I guarantee, knows who did it. Now, keep in mind that Ashley Madison is a private company uh, making tons of money. And for whatever reasons, uh, I think you know, they are working out something internally uh, that makes them you know, not, look, not look so bad to the public. And I don't know how they're going to do that. It's, it's, they've already had uh, suicides and, and, and losses. I didn't know that, uh, that they had that. So, so after the list was released, there's been like suicides as people. There have been, there have been I think, uh, three suicides so far. Oh, my uh, gosh. Due, due to the release of the data. So I want to I want to reel back a little bit because I feel like there's been two consistent themes throughout most of your life. I'll say the past 30, 35 years, and that's uh, privacy and reinvention. So you've reinvented your life multiple times and and often it's been related to um, different aspects of the concept of privacy. So you were at, you were at Lockheed Martin, one of the biggest defense company invades our privacy on a, on a daily basis. But that's when you started also working on the side on McAfee Associates, your first, uh, antivirus software. So, right. uh, you know, and, and what fascinated me at first with the Lockheed thing was you needed to, you needed to get security clearance. And so they asked you all these questions and you were so personally revealing that they gave you security clearance, I guess, because you have you had nothing to hide. Who was gonna Who was gonna try to uh, blackmail you on anything? You were already revealing everything. Right. I, I because I I'd had a very checkered past prior to joining Lockheed Martin, and um, the uh, I assumed that there would be no chance in hell I would ever get uh, security clearance. They asked me very re, you know revealing questions. You know, had I ever had sex with sheep or or, or dogs? I mean, incredibly incredible things. Uh, had I ever taken drugs? The answer was yes. Uh, what kind? Almost every kind. Uh, how much? A lot. Have you ever sold drugs? Yes. Um, so I assumed I'd never get the clearance, but I did, and it came in very quickly. So and I think that was the reason that uh, I was so upfront with them. They thought that, you're right, this guy's got nothing to hide um, because he was, you know, if he told us these things, then, uh, you know, what, what, you know, what will make him, uh, you know, uh, be blackmailed. Yeah. So, so then at some point while you were at Lockheed, and, and I have a very similar experience, while you were at Lockheed, you started your own company on the side. And was that something you kind of had to do on the quiet, or were you kind of upfront about that, or what was happening then? Like, how did you, how did you start this company on the side? Well, I actually went to my, my manager at Lockheed and told them what I was going to do, and uh, um, yeah, I, because I had to sign, uh, obviously, uh, confidentiality agreements when I, I started at Lockheed. And the fact that uh, certain things that I did at Lockheed would be owned by Lockheed and had to renegotiate that contract. 
uh, and kept working at Lockheed until uh, McAfee became so successful that I, I, I could not continue. So um, that was how that came about. And why, and, did they, and why did they let you renegotiate your contract? Like, why did they let you do this? I, I, th I think because I was doing really good work at Lockheed. Um, and uh, I was working on a black program, uh, which even today I can't talk about. Black programs are programs that officially do not exist. Um, you know, that, uh, you know, you, you reach a, a certain level of security clearance, you're moved into black programs if you're, if you're a good enough worker and have enough technical uh, capacity. Um, and it's, it's astonishing, the, the world that opens up to you, that, uh, that you think that you understand technology and you understand the this, this, this state of the art, and suddenly you realize that you're 20 years behind the times. Um, and so that was the program, uh, the programs I was working on. And I, I guess, you know, they just said, you know, we'll, we'll let him do this because we need him. And so kind of the iconic story is that you got infected with uh, uh, some computer virus and that created this anger, I guess, in you that you wanted to stop that. And so you started McAfee. Is that true? Well, yeah, it wasn't, it was not anger. It was curiosity more than anything else. When, when the, the first virus came out, Keep in mind, viruses were the first programs that could move themselves from one computer to another and infect that, that system. Well, that was such a fascinating concept to me. Because uh, yeah, it even it could be a positive thing, really. Like, you know, yeah. that's, that's also well, how software updates happen. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so I wanted to understand it. Uh, and the first virus was written by two kids from Lahore, Pakistan, of all places. And it was called the Pakistani Brain. Um, so I picked the thing apart. I got a copy of it, picked it apart, and I was fascinated at the at the concept. I'm like, this is great. Not 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 to go around hacking people or or to plant viruses, but simply the concept of self perpetuating software. Uh, it's like a like a, a living entity almost. So and I quickly came up with a, a, a way to to stop the thing from replicating, and and I wrote an, uh, the first antivirus for the Pakistani brain, and that worked. Uh, and from there, it just escalated as more and more viruses came out. I kept writing for, for different people or different companies, kept writing uh, the antivirus for it until finally a company was formed. So, so I assume this was an easy sell when you would go from door to door and you could say, look, these viruses are going to happen. You have computers. You need my software to protect yourself or they're going to totally rob you. Like that's, it's probably an easy sales pitch. Well, actually, there was no selling at all. Uh, at, the, at the same time, I had a hobby as a bulletin board uh, operator. This is prior to the Internet, so you probably don't even know what a bulletin board is. No, I, I'm prior to the Internet as well. Oh, okay, fair enough. So I was running, I was running a, a, a bulletin board called TBBS, one of the largest in Silicon Valley, called Homebase. I had 16 phone lines attached to it and thousands of users. And so when the software that I would write for companies, I would simply make free and available on the Internet, I mean, on, on the bulletin board. And the way that it got propagated around the world was every user of a bulletin board was also a user of some other bulletin board. So after I would uh, write a, um, an antivirus for a new virus, within a couple of days, it was on every computer in the world. Uh, it, it took that long, of course, to, you know, to, it's not like the Internet today where something is up there and you can instantly access it because it had to move from server to server. But within a couple of days, it, it, it spread around the world. So I didn't do any selling. Everybody just kept coming to me through the bulletin board saying, we need this, we need that. Uh, until finally, I, I decided that I was going to start charging not individuals, but companies, uh, based on the number of, of systems that they were putting this on, uh, simply because I, I had to quit Lockheed in order to keep up with the work. And I had to make an income. 
Uh, and so the, the, my first year of business, I made over $10 million and I had no salesman or, or staff. How did that change? How did that change your life? Like just personally? Uh, the first year, not at all. In fact, for almost, for almost two years, I still lived in a tiny little house in, uh, uh, in Santa Clara, California, uh, driving the same old car. And it was my wife that finally went and bought a, a you know, a few million dollar mansion on the coast of Santa Cruz and we moved. Um, but it didn't change my life at all. But for at least for the first two years, you know, and then later, kind of like in between lots of different changes in your life, you started getting really into spirituality and yoga. You wrote uh, books on yoga. Like, how did that change come across? You know, I'm, I'm not sure. I think I think my wife also got me involved in yoga initially. My wife's a yoga teacher as well. Perfect. So you'll understand. Um, and, and it was it was just great for relaxation. I mean, the, the business of doing uh, the antivirus research was very time-consuming, very difficult mentally, um, and it, yoga was just a way for me to relax. Uh, and in doing so, I just got very involved in it. Well, when you were running, though, this at this point, this is a, a multi-billion-dollar company. You had a massive net, net worth. Like, were you still able to get involved in kind of the software aspects, or were you too busy dealing with being a public company? I was way too busy being uh, dealing with a public company. That, that was the problem. I no longer was enjoying myself. Um, I was having to deal with stockholders and um, government agencies and, and, and board meetings and, and hiring and staffing and things that are, are, are absolutely have no interest to me. Uh, and I simply wanted to get back to the, the fundamentals of technology, which is, which, is my, which is my love and always has been. So, so what did you do? What did you do first? When, when you realized that you were feeling kind of, oh, I don't want to wake up in the morning and deal with this again, what, what did, what's the first thing you did to kind of get yourself out of that feeling? Well, I decided I was going to I was going to walk away. There would be no way that I could do what I wanted to do at McAfee, working for someone else at McAfee. This wouldn't work. I spent, I think, a quarter of a million dollars on a hiring agency to find a replacement for myself. Uh, and I found probably the, the best man on the planet, a gentleman named Bill Larson, who worked for, uh, he was a vice president at, at IBM at the time. I hired him and the next day walked out, never looked back. And then, um, of course, kind of reeling forward a little bit, uh, you ended up in Belize and, uh, you know, things went crazy from there. Like I'm sure you, what, what, well, first, why did you go to Belize? Why Belize? Well, because physically it's, it's the most beautiful country in the world. It has an offshore. It's the second longest barrier reef in the world. I had a house on the coast, uh, a, a dock with many boats, uh, which you cannot have in Florida or anywhere along the Pacific coast because uh, uh, there's no barrier to, to protect the energy of the waves. Uh, the, the internal of the country is, is jungle, forest, mountains, uh, ancient Mayan ruins that have not been excavated or explored. I mean, it's just, it's spectacular. Uh, unfortunately, it's still a pirate haven. It is, it is a third world country in Central America run by pirates, basically. Um, and you know, if, if you're a, a rich man in, in a pirate haven, you're, you're going to get pirated. That's just the facts of life. I did, I did not understand that prior to going clearly. Right. And I, and, and before we get into kind of your, your issues there, there was one comment on your blog uh, from a guy who, who clearly knew what Belize was about that basically suggested to you, maybe when you got there, you should have laid low a little bit instead of kind of spending a lot of money and, and showing people who you were. Uh, do you think that's correct? Yeah, it's not a matter of showing people who I was, but it was a matter of, of looking at the, the extreme poverty 
an extreme lack of access to, to tools and things that uh, education, for example, that I just tried to help the people around me. And, and in doing so, they're going to raise too much attention. And so, so the government literally like went crazy over you. Like what did they, how did they first, before they started persecuting you, I'm sure they wanted something from you. Like what, how did they first approach you wanting something from you? They approached me uh, asking for a $2 million donation to the government for their next, for their next election. In return, I was to get, you know, huge uh, swaths of land along the, the new river and, and, you know, extreme benefits with this $2 million quote investment. And I, I said, no, thank you. Um, uh, two weeks later, my, my property on the internal of Belize in a, in a, a county called Orange Walk was, was raided by 42 soldiers from their, their uh, gang suppression unit of all, place, of all places. They destroyed a lab that I'd been working on antibiotics on, uh, shot my dog in front of my eyes, kept me handcuffed kneeling in the sun for 14 hours, and then left. Uh, the next day, the politician came back saying, oh, my God, what a terrible mistake we made. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. Have you reconsidered your donation? And I told him to get the F off my property. So, so wait a second, though. When you were being handcuffed for like 14 hours in the sun and there's like guns and shooting all around you, what was going through your head then? I knew what was happening. It, I, I, I suddenly it all became clear to me. at that moment. The clarity of my situation just just dawned on me. That's how stupid I had been or how oblivious to my situation I had been. So, so, so you realized you were more valuable to them alive than dead. So you knew they weren't going to kill you. Well, I knew they weren't going to kill me. I knew exactly what was happening. Um, the, there was absolutely no cause for the, for the raid. Um, and it was, it was a scary raid. 42 soldiers storming into your property in riot gear with, with fully automatic weapons, uh, shooting your dog in front of your eyes for no reason, by the way. Um, and so why did you why did you stay after so given that you then told the guy to f off why did you stay in 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 the same place in the same country basically I'd been there for 5 years it was my home at the time you would you would have stayed too and so I thought that that, that I could get justice all right so I went to the international press over the incident um you know I, all I asked for was an apology from the prime minister uh and reimbursement for the for the laboratory that they destroyed uh, which is about a half million dollars worth of investment. Uh, instead, I took a war, and a war that I could not possibly have won. Right, but didn't, I mean, you, you're obviously incredibly smart. Like, didn't you think that even if you go to the international press, the prime minister doesn't give a shit, like he's going to get you after that? Well, actually, I didn't think that. What I thought was, since the, since the American government provides hundreds of millions of dollars of support to police every year, that somehow international pressure would bring some some reality, but no, it didn't. It just pissed everybody off. Right. Like, what what was your contact with the embassy at that time? Like, did they say, "Hey, don't worry, John, we're going to help you out"? Uh, well, no, they actually advised me to leave. Okay. I I just didn't take their advice. And so then the next time, Belize basically they didn't quite accuse you of murder, but they basically said you were a person of suspect in the case of a murder of another, uh, basically. They wanted to question me. Okay. But in police, what that means is stringing you upside down, putting a hit a football helmet on your head and beating you until your brains turn to mush, leaving no bruises or external scars whatsoever. I mean, among other things, these are the torture devices that that's what questioning is. I had no intention of undergoing such a, an ordeal. Right. So, so 
you went on the run and I remember reading like your blog, you you were posting a, like regular posts of what was going on with you while you were on the run and in hiding. And it was, yeah. it was riveting. Like, uh, uh, I don't even know if those posts are still online, but at the time it was, it was very riveting to me because I I've been a fan. So, so how did you ultimately kind of make your way out of Belize? Well, I'd been there long enough that I understood how the, the system worked. I knew, for example, that on rainy days, police do not go outside. That doesn't matter what's happening. Uh, roadblocks disappear, and they, they had roadblocks everywhere to try to catch me in my attempt to leave. So I, I was checking the weather reports. Uh, by that time, Vice magazine had two reporters with me, which I had secretly uh, uh, bought into my hiding location. Um, and uh, arranged for transportation. And on the rainy day, we just we just drove all the way down to the border of Guatemala, grabbed a boat, and took the boat over to the, into Guatemala with no interference whatsoever. Okay, and then I want to get to Guatemala in a second, but I also want to get back to your the laboratory you were building in Belize. So this was this kind of natural antibiotics laboratory, uh, and you were you were in in some sense you were you know now the term biohacking is a very common uh, phrase. But you were you were like sort of ten or fifteen years ahead of your time. Like, what were you what were you looking into? A, a new concept called quorum sensing. Um, it's it's brand it's a, a new understanding of the way that uh, single celled organisms communicate. That uh, that things like bacteria actually communicate with each other. Example: a a um, uh, like a, a staph infection when it first gets into your system does nothing. Uh, it's very benign. It waits until there is a quorum that is based on the, 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 the size of the organism and the number of bacteria that are there. They then turn on their pathogenic activity. That is the, the flesh eating part or whatever. But you may be infected for weeks or months before that's turned on. They have to build up enough numbers to overwhelm your immune system. So that concept, when I, when I first read about that, I thought, good Lord. Now that's that's something that no one had ever thought about. It it made the idea of bacteria as as a not not an individual element, but as a group, an intelligent species. Um, I wanted to dig into that, and I was at the perfect location uh, on the New River in Belize with all of the thousands of unexplored plants. And so I set up a lab, uh, hired a, a, a researcher from from uh, just graduated from Harvard. Uh, and started doing research, and we were well along the way to to, to some very promising antibiotics um, when the laboratory was destroyed. So, well, why don't you get back into that? Because I and we're going to talk about your your new company soon, but it seems like that's an incredibly valuable thing to still explore. Yes, but I don't have access to the to the material for, because when I left Belize, I left with nothing. The government confiscated all of my money, which I foolishly had, had bought to Belize. Uh, all of my properties, which they burned down, um, most of them anyway, and um, I was left with, with nothing other than other than my shoes and shirt and, and pants. Well, well, then this this explores the concept of reinvention a little bit because I think I think people don't realize um, how difficult, in so many ways, it is to have enormous wealth and then have nothing. They, it's hard to realize that it's possible, and then it's hard to realize how people can come back from that because we associate our net worth with our self-worth so much. Like how on the internally, on the inside, because that's where it starts first, how, how did you on the inside start to develop the mentality to say, hey, I'm gonna come back from this, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an inventor, here's what I'm gonna do? Well, I, I think it's because I've never, 
equated my self worth with my net worth. Uh, and when we first started the discussion, I, I mentioned it for two years. I still lived in this tiny two room house uh, with you know thirty million dollars in the bank because I didn't have the time to do anything with the money. I was too involved in in doing the work. It was my wife who actually started spending it and buying mansions and cars and things. So and I just sort of went along for the ride. And so I have I have never equated myself with my with my net worth. So so um, so, so in Guatemala though, you're there with nothing and you're still kind of on the run and you don't know what's going to happen, and you're bereft of all of your resources. W- what happens next? Like, how do you survive? Um, through, my, through my own wits, I was arrested in Guatemala. The other thing I did not uh, count on was even escaping into Guatemala didn't mean much because of the relationship between police and Guatemala. Um, even though I was an American citizen, um, the Guatemala was, was fully ready to return me to police. Uh, because they said I had entered the country illegally. Well, you know, according to national law, I should be exported back to my, my home country. Um, and so uh, I, I hired a lawyer uh, who was the ex-attorney um, uh, general for the country of Guatemala, a guy named... Very Tlesor. good lawyer. Right. At, at, at the time, I still had about $75,000 in cash outside of the country, which I used to hire that lawyer. That was the last of my resources. With that money, he got me released and sent back to the States. Now, during that time, though, you you actually, at first, Guatemala wanted to send you back to Belize, and you faked a heart attack to stay uh, hospitalized in Guatemala. Like, how did you pull that off? That's not actually how it happened. I, the, the heart attack happened after I hired the, the lawyer. The lawyer got a judge up in, uh, uh, actually, a, tw- a 22-year-old woman who happened to be a Guatemalan judge, got her out of bed at 4 in the morning. The day they were supposed to ship me back to get a stay of my ship of my shipping back, uh, stay until noon. That's that's all the power she had. Uh, he was going to file an appeal to the Supreme Court at three o'clock. Between noon and three o'clock was the time the Guatemala was going to deport me. He came into my cell, explained this to me, and said, "Do you understand?" And I said, "I understand fully." He said, "I will take care of this." Uh, so just just before noon, I faked a heart attack, fell down, and because of of the humanitarian laws in Guatemala, they, they could not ship me off until I had been you know, tested and verified at three o'clock. I said, I feel better. I want to go back to myself. Uh, and at that point, I, I knew we had won the war. That's great. So, so then you come back to the U.S. and, decide, and you, you've been all over, but you've, you've still always stuck with this concept of privacy, that privacy is important. And, and there's viruses all over the place. And in fact, Vi- the, the, the viral web is much more uh, complex now than it was in, in the 80s. Like now you have all these bots all over these computers. Like, is it possible for there to be true online privacy? Well, no, not certainly not in today's world. But, but let me start by saying that you, you mentioned that I believe that privacy is important. It's not important. I think it, it's, it's a necessary uh, foundation for the, the existence of the human species. Um, privacy is, is something that we choose, and we choose it constantly. You, you just don't notice that you're doing it. Uh, when you meet someone at the grocery store for the first time, you don't re- reveal to them the full intimate de- the, you know, details of your life. You may reveal to them just how you feel. Hey, how are you feeling? Oh, good, thank you. Um, as you get to know people, you open up more and more, or, or less and less, depending on the person that you're, you're, you are dealing with. So we choose privacy as, as uh, a, a, uh, a method of our own self-interest and self-maintenance. 
Uh, if we if we don't have privacy, what are we? Seriously, uh, you know. But let me ask you, like, like take the Snowden leaks for example. So, so he exposed and and all the WikiLeaks stuff. They've exposed enormous amounts of information about the U.S. government, for instance. And people don't really seem to a care or b it doesn't seem to really affect people on a personal basis. So, like, I'm wondering just how important. Um, privacy is on a computer level. Like even if people like Google knows my ad preferences, it's not like they're exposing all of my information all the time. Well, let's just take the Ashley Madison hack as an example of an online privacy breach. There have already been three suicides because of the release of information. Now, again, this, this deals to the level of privacy that I'm saying that we choose for certain acts and certain things. We don't tell anybody, not even, not even our wives or our parents. Um, uh, for others, we are open with the entire world. Uh, so if, if someone commits suicide based on a, 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 a breach of privacy, there's no way you can say that privacy is unimportant. It's only unimportant if it's happening to other people. I wonder, I wonder if, yeah. like if, a, if a personal hack people should do is essentially if it's not, if, if I can, I'm not going to do something unless I'm willing to see it on the front page of the New York times. Like that's kind of a, a cliche, but it's sort of true in today's world. Like everything you do could be out there. Well, it, it's, it's not a matter of being on the front page of the New York Times. It's a matter of what, how it actually impacts your life. And when it begins to impact people's lives, um, you know, like uh, uh, people come knocking on your door and dragging you off to jail, uh, then the world would sit up and take note. I mean, I don't know if you've ever, ever read the book 1984 by George Orwell. I would highly recommend that everybody reread that book because that's where we're heading. We're heading to a place where, uh, in, in in the book, no one had no one had any privacy at any time, and it led to a society of total grayness where everything was gray. Uh, there was there was no life anywhere, uh, and that was all based on the fact that there was no privacy anymore. So uh, I think reading that book and 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 truly getting the the gist of what privacy means might might help people a little bit. But I think until it actually affects a person personally, uh, that that no one's going to care. So, so tell me about your company, which is which is dealing with this issue, Future Ten Central. So you're you're, you're basically saying um, you're you're basically looking for uh, all the different ways now privacy is being kind of uh, hacked into. Well, yeah, I think I think that it's it's the number one priority in my life now is is to alert the world to the dangers of the loss of privacy. And to provide them tools to try to keep what little privacy they have left, uh, and I'm not I'm not so much worried about you know hackers stealing credit cards and things like this. I mean you can you can recover from a loss of, of income. Uh, it's difficult to recover from a loss of privacy, and so um, the I think the most insecure device that we have in terms of, of uh, privacy invasion is the smartphone, uh, our mobile devices. Uh, they they are designed architecturally to be spy devices, if you think about it, uh, because the way that companies make money from these things is not by, by you paying anything, but by them finding out information about you. The architecture is based on the concept of finding out by helping you. Gee, if you'll just tell us this, we can help you. Tell us where you are right now, we can recommend a restaurant. Tell us what your favorite uh, clothes are, we can recommend a place for you to buy them. Uh, people do not understand that by putting all of this information into the quote cloud, which is the craziest concept I've yet heard, um, that, that what they're doing is they're losing their privacy bit by bit, a little by little. Each piece is 
is, is actually feels good as you're losing it because you're being assisted in some way in that loss of privacy um, by, by making life easier for you. You don't have to think as much. You don't have to do as much. Uh, but at some point, it's going to turn around to come the other way. And when that happens, uh, we're going to be at the doorstep of 1984. So, so what, what do you think is, like right now, for instance, if I want to go outside and get a car, I'll use, you know, I'll reveal my location and a car will pick me up. Or right now I'm staying at an Airbnb, for instance. So Airbnb knows like every place I've stayed in the past year. Uh, yes. So, so what's, what's the next step where I should be scared? When, when, the government, when the government gets full control of that information, because dictatorship is nothing more than an understanding, a full knowledge of the citizenship of, 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 of your dictatorial area. Uh, because really, if, if the government has full knowledge of you, then it has full control of you. Think about it. This is, this is where the danger really begins. Um, dictatorship is not the quest for power. It's the quest for information about the populace. And what we have here is a tool that gives a potential worldwide dictatorship to someone who's not going to like something that you do. Maybe they're not liking where you're staying, or they're not liking the way you're treating some employee or whatever. We're going to be in a very sad affair. This is the facts of life. And it, it sounds extreme to, to go from uh, information uh, from, from Airbnb to a dictatorship. And yet the step is not that extreme. Well, like what, what is, what is the first, what's the first thing that would be like the canary in the coal mine for you where, oh my gosh, the government is doing X. Now we're in trouble. I, I think, I think uh, Edward Snowden already said we are in trouble. I mean, let, let's face it. We are being spied on by virtually every agency. Uh, by means um, that 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 are are highly technical and virtually impossible to stop using the devices that we have. I mean, at Future Ten Central, we're we're developing software to to help as best we can uh, by allowing you to shut down things like your microphone and your your camera, uh, your Wi-Fi connections, so that they they cannot be forcibly opened uh, by all of these uh, these um, uh, grants that you have given to the applications. Because when th these free apps, there's nothing free in life. I'm sorry. If, if, if you think there is, then you weren't listening to your parents' advice. Um, nothing is free. You pay for everything. Uh, and, and, and all the freedom, you, you get all these free devices. You need to think of what you're paying. You are paying something. And what you're paying is the loss of privacy. It's funny because my, my wife is probably more sensitive to this than I am. She has post-it notes over the taped over the cameras on all of our computers at home, so that very wise woman. Yeah, because because uh, uh, I guess people could, if they have the right program or or virus on your computer, they can turn on your camera without turning on the light, and they can see what you're doing. I can guarantee you that if you have a smartphone and you've downloaded more than ten applications, someone is watching you now. I can guarantee it. Really, like who? Who are they? The the for example the a game app, flashlight applications. Okay, why are they free? Why would someone waste the time? Although a flashlight app is very easy to develop, I've done one myself in a couple of days. Wait, what, what, do you, what do you call them? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Flashlight, uh, you know, turns that turns your camera flash into a flashlight. You, you you switch it on and you switch it off so that at night you can use your phone like a flashlight. There are literally millions of these apps. Not just I'm not I'm not specifically saying flashlights, but all of these uh, convenience apps. Who's writing these things? Sometimes there's just one person in, in, in India or in Pakistan or in Russia. Uh, why are they doing it? 
trust me, if they're not getting money for it, they're getting something. Um, and so if, and if you look at your apps, okay, one of the, one of the products that we have is a, is a product called Devasive. Uh, if, you, if you run Devasive, it will tell you what permissions you've already given. You will be shocked. Okay, you'll be, you will be shocked at the, um, at, at the amount of permissions you have given applications because something like a flashlight app, which does not need uh, access to your camera and your microphone and your, and your Wi-Fi in order to operate, will still demand those privileges before you can run it. We don't even bother to read them. They just say accept or decline, and we just press the accept button. So if, if you run Devasive, I guarantee you that every single app in your system is ex overextending its permissions. In other words, it's getting information from you that it does not need in order to, uh, to operate. Um, so, I, so that's the first thing to do is just become aware of what we have done. By, by taking these conveniences, what have we given up? We've allowed almost all of them to watch us anytime that they want. We grant them that permission to listen to us, to send the data wherever they choose, and to do whatever they wish with the data. Now, have you ever yeah. seen an example like, let's say, you know, people always refer to the difference between the web and the dark web, and the dark web being this area that's, you know, a little tricky to get to, but it contains all of these kind of illegal apps and data and so on. Have you ever seen any examples where some of this information is out there, maybe hard to get to, but some very kind of private information is out there and, and is accessible? Well, absolutely. I mean, again, run. I recommend everybody download Devasive. It's free. Uh, and, well, nothing and life's free. Okay. Well, this one is. Believe me. Uh, you look at our permissions. The only thing we're the only thing that we're we're asking permission for is to access your apps and give you information about their permissions. And so, it, it will it will tell you uh, that every single app. For example, Bible reading apps. There's not a single Bible reading application. A Bible reading means that you want to read the Bible, but you're too tired to read. So you press the little button and say, read to me chapter 24 of, of Genesis. Okay. Tonight. And so it will, it will do that. Um, and um, so you can turn the lights out and, and listen to chapter 24 of Genesis and, and go to sleep or, or, or throughout the day, you can be listening to the Bible being read to you. Every single one of these takes every piece of information about you and sends them to a, a server in Atlanta owned by focus on the family. Now, that 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 sends goosebumps up my spine. And these are not dark web applications. These are you get you download straight from Google, straight from Google. Why can they do that? Because you have granted them permission to do that by accepting their terms and conditions. You don't bother to read them. Here's the problem. Right. So so potentially a problem there is if some faction like this becomes in charge of a country, people could be judged based on in this case how much Bible reading they do, how much uh, they kind of align with your own values and interests. If, for example, the fundamental, uh, fundamental religious group takes over the country and uh, you're doing something they don't like, like taking a sip of, of wine in, in the privacy of, a, of your bedroom, uh, then suddenly the stormtroopers are going to come in and take you off to a, a life term imprisonment. We don't know. Or I guess like somebody who's not so religious could be more um, attacked by like the IRS or whatever. Like they could rank people that way. Or any way they want. I mean, keep in mind, we're, we're talking about a fundamental change in society, given a fundamental change in government. So, um, yeah, anything can happen. It's, it's happened throughout history in governments where a, a peaceful country turns into a dictatorship and suddenly there are storms. It happened in Germany. Good Lord. Ten million Jews uh, rounded up and, 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 and executed. 
Uh, people could not believe it at the time because it was inconceivable, yet it was happening. And people are not going to believe it when it happens this time because it is inconceivable, but it will happen unless we do something. And, and okay, so other than downloading DBASIC, what else can we do? Well, we, number one, we inform ourselves about the, um, the, the, the risk that we have already put ourselves in. Number two, we take some action. Uh, and that's where the difficulty is going to come in, because in taking that action, uh, we're going to have to give up some of these conveniences and take some control back of our own lives. We're going to have to use our own mind to remember things, perhaps, rather than letting the, the computer remember them for us. For example, a lot of people don't even know their own phone numbers, um, you know, let alone the phone numbers of their friends, because all they do is press a button and, and type in a name and suddenly there's your friend is talking to you. Um, I'm not saying we have to give up that level. But we're going to have to give up some level of convenience. We're going to have to take charge of our own lives. We're going to have to realize that 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 living is is not a free thing, and and that we have responsibilities both to ourselves and to our families and to society, which we are giving up every day because we're letting them uh, these responsibilities be taken over by by entities called programs. So so John, it seems like you've been on such a roller coaster. Like there was McAfee Associates, multi-billion dollar company. Belize, and now it's almost like you're living a quieter life in the South, out in the open. What are what are you worried about? Are you worried Belize is going to come back after you? Or are you going to worry any, um, you know, are you worried the government's going to come after you because you're so anti, uh, you know, whatever they're doing with privacy? Like, what what, what worries you right now? Well, it's not, it's not a worry. I think it's, it's a certainty that the government will come after me. Uh, because I'm one of the most outspoken opponents of, of, of the, the most powerful elements of the government, the NSA, uh, the CIA, the, the covert agencies that are collecting all this information, uh, and companies, powerful companies like Harris Corporation, the, the manufacturer of the Stingray, the device that, that every police in, in the country has in the back of a van that drives down the street and can listen, and can listen to every single conversation that's happening. Yeah, see, here's the, here's the problem. I'm saying it, they've been around for years uh, and, and they exist everywhere. But Harris Corporation, through contractual oblig obligations with the, the cities in which they do business, uh, manages to keep this information private. I mean, it's bizarre what's already happening that people do not know. Uh, but if, if you do a research on just just put the word Stingray into, into a Google search and see what comes up, you'll be shocked. You really will. I'm almost afraid to do that because maybe Google will send to the government that James Altucher is researching uh, stingrays. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But uh, it is amazing. Like we looked at the flashlight app, as you suggested during the little break we took. And yeah. why would a flashlight app want to have access to take videos, for instance? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like, is there, is there any actual rational reason why a flashlight app would want that? No, of course not. There's no rational reason. I mean, other than they would want, they would, because it's it's very powerful and 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 valuable information. If they if they're videoing you and they catch you, you know, because you give them also the right to do what they want with it. Uh, if you're doing something foolish, you might show up on YouTube, for example. You can't do anything legally about that because you've given them the permission to video you and see what they want with that video. And if we uninstall it, does that take away their permission or no? It does. It it, it takes away the full app and their permissions. Yes. And um. You know, there was another app. Uh, I forgot which one, Claudia. It, it had wanted to have access to her SD card. Yes. What 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 does what does that give access to? 
all the photos or all the information is on the SD card. In other words, if you put an SD card in there that, that has information from a different computer, it has access to that information. And, you know, there was, I think the flashlight app also had access to all internet data. So I, I assume yeah. that means like all her typing and everything. Every, everything that she does on the internet, all of her files, uh, everything that she opens, if she has a password, it gets access to that password, everything. Wow. She, she's in a, her, her face is a state of panic right now. Well, everybody's face should be in a state of panic. This is what I'm trying to get across. Everybody in the world should be in the same state that your wife is in right now. How do we make that happen? John, you're in a very special state in the sense that you're very transparent about your life. Like we talked about earlier with, with Lockheed, uh, with, with everything you've done, like with, with when, when you were on the run in Belize and you were keeping the, the ongoing diary, even though nobody knew uh, where to find you. Do you find that this gives you kind of, in, in, a, in some sense, you have no privacy because you're totally transparent and yet you care so much about the privacy of everyone else? Well, I give up my I give up some of my privacy to try to gain privacy for others, perhaps. Again, there's not much about my life I, I, I care to keep private anymore. Um, I'm you know I'm 70 years old, and uh, if you want to know something, ask me. I'll be I'll be happy to tell you. Um, none of us are perfect. Not not that I have found in my 70 years anyway. It's so, really, it's really um, true. Let me ask you about that. None of us are perfect, and yet if you do one single thing wrong on the internet. The entire internet erupts in outrage as if everyone is perfect. Have you noticed that phenomenon even with yourself? Like you, like you're going to court today over something you did two weeks ago, which we don't have to talk about, but I'm sure you've developed, gotten some grief on the internet for it. Of course, always do. And how do you personally deal with that? I don't, I don't feel one way or another. That, uh, that's the, the problem with the person that has those feelings. Um, if a person is angry at me for something I have done, then that anger is in that person. It is their problem, not mine. I always tell myself that, but that's really hard if they hit your exact buttons. But uh, I don't have any buttons. <laughs> that's, that's good to have. Now, is that something you feel you were born with, or you had to develop along the way? Uh, trust me, I had to. I had to file them all down through, through a long and hard life. Like, like with Belize, when people thought you were actually guilty of murder, were you scared that people actually believed that? Like, did that did that hit a button? No, that, that didn't that didn't frighten me. What frightened me was whether I was going to get caught, you know, crossing the border or not. Um, you know, the, my own conscience is, is clear on, on on that charge, and so that's all that matters to me. What other, what other people think is their problem. And you developed also, like you you also dealt with a lot of bad people down there, and just reading all the different interactions about all the different interactions, to some extent, you you know, like anybody. You know, like I, I could say for myself, my judge of character is not always the best. I have to learn through experience. And I think you probably could say the same thing about yourself. Like you went through a lot of bad experiences with bad people that you at first trusted. Uh, how do you think one can shortcut developing having a good judge of character? I'm, I'm, well, kind, of, I'm kind of using you as my therapist right now. You know, here, here's, here's my issue with that. I think, I think you should trust people to be people. That is, that we're just humans to be human, meaning that all of us have anger and fear and doubt. Uh, we all judge. Uh, we all love. Uh, we all hope and, and have dreams. We are all the same. Really. There's, there's no difference between any of us. Um, and if you, if you put your trust in people, you must put your trust in that which you know, which that person is going to be at some time greedy, at some time resentful, at some time angry, uh, at some time hurtful. Um, 
then if, if, if something happens, you, you, you can't blame them. You must blame yourself. You know, John, I know uh, uh, like a bio- you, you had mentioned a biography is being written about you. Why don't you write your own book? Because I kind of think your voice is distinct enough and you, and you have experience writing with, with the blog and everything. You probably you don't have the skill set to write a real excellent best-selling book containing your bio intermingled with your philosophy and so on. Like it's it would be a great I would I would buy it and read it. Um, you know, it, it, it's, I think it's a matter of time. That's a very time-consuming act, uh, which I have—I uh, just currently do not have the time for. I, I'm working with—I'm I'm working with other people who are doing the work. I've, uh, Spike TV is doing a six-part docu series on me, um, and they began filming a few weeks ago at DefCon. Um, there's uh, someone doing a graphic novel. I'm—I'm I'm cooperating with them uh, right now. I just—I don't have the time to do it in my voice. And right now you're mostly focused on your company, Future Tense. Yeah, absolutely. And how's that going? Uh, I think I think we have probably the, the finest the privacy solutions in the world. What, um, what and, about and, companies that are being attacked by like like armies of bots? Like it's, it seems like more than half the Fortune 500s invaded. A, a product called Starks, S T T A R X. Uh, which is absolutely the most secure intranet um, uh, in the world, and I believe that that uh, no bots will get will get through any of that. Really, um, Be- because I I've met companies that have made that pitch, and one thing they always tell me is, no matter how smart we are, the, the invaders are always smarter. Uh, yeah, eventually, uh, but it, it, it what it cons- turns out to be is a matter of time. In other words, how long is it going to take you? Um, to to break into something, and what you know, uh, what what will it cost you to do so? So if we can if we can delay the process of of uh, breaking in by five years, haven't we gained five years? Yeah, that's true. Oh, so my wife wants to ask a question. She she's worried about like bank accounts. Like, let's say you 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 gave up all your information on your SD card, and then you log into your bank account on your smartphone. Uh, is that is everybody in trouble with their bank account? They're in trouble with everything. Uh, of course, it's just are they actually going to do it today? Probably not. Will they do it eventually? Yes, absolutely. I like so. your approach of because we were talking about this earlier. Like, uh, of we have to kind of go back to leading a simpler life. Um, you know, right now we've kind of outsourced our memories uh, to Google. Like, if I don't remember something, I just Google it, and now they have all that information that I've forgotten. Um, right. But at the same time, you could have made that same argument, you know, when people started writing, like with the Gutenberg Press, like we kind of outsourced our memory a little bit to, to just the simple act of, of writing and, and printing presses. And I wonder if there's a way to kind of move forward in technology without giving up some of these uh, uh, new conveniences we have. Well, we can move forward, but we, we, we have to take some part of our life back. We have, we have to start doing thinking for ourselves. We, can't, we cannot let these mobile devices be our brains. We can't, uh, because that, that, that is the, 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 the path to an artificial intelligence which finally rids the world of people. Um, we, can't, we can't take that path. We have, to, we, have to, we have to use the artificial intelligence systems that we design uh, for purposes uh, that do not remove the responsibility for our own lives from ourselves. Okay, so my, my, my wife has two questions she wants to ask you, and then we're going to let you get to court because I know that's really important. So, 
Hi, John. It's a pleasure to meet you. And uh, I'm scared to death right now. And I'm glad that I met you. And, and this is it's an honor to be talking to you. I have two questions that are more on the philosophical side. You've been through enormous ups and, and downs on public shaming. And you know how we all have a voice in our head that is constantly torturing us and telling us the worst case scenario? Do you have that voice going on every time one of these things happens? I, I do not have that voice going on. No, I, I'm sitting here with a good friend I've known for 12 years, and early this morning, again, I'm going to court today where I may, I may, uh, I could face 15 years in jail, uh, and uh, yet I'm working on a uh, on a new um, uh, article, and I'm saying, well, well, we'll worry about that this afternoon. And did I not say that, John? Mm -hmm. He's sitting here with me right now. He just he just entered the house. So. I said, we'll worry, we'll worry about it then. So I don't have that voice in my head. That's amazing. And the second question I had, because you touched upon it a little bit before, would you say that at the root of all of it is fear? That when we look deep into all of these voices that we get into our heads and that make us uh, paranoid, uh, what at the root of it is fear. And some of that fear is definitely real. And we need to look into this. Okay, now we're getting into an area where we could have a 50-year discussion, you know, and we could talk about, we could talk about Krishnamurti and, and uh, different uh, te techniques of meditation. Fear is certainly a, fu a fundamental issue that we all have to face. Um, you know, the, the, the one fear that we never seem to face properly is the, is the, is the fear of death, that we are, in fact, going to all die. This is a fact, all of us. And we don't know when that's going to occur. You know, it, it could be in the next moment. Or it die could, on the day you're born. Uh, yes, you could die on the day you're born, which happens. So we're, we're, we're all going to exit this earth. No one gets out of life alive. And yet all, we all act as if we don't, we don't believe that. We act as if we have an eternity in which to live. So I think we should start there if you're going to start somewhere. Yeah, so, you. That, so you mentioned Krishnamurti. Obviously, you study like a lot of these types of philosophers who believe in kind of living in the present, living in the now, and not... And, and avoiding the anxiety of the future or the regrets yeah. of the past. The future, the future does not exist. Neither does the past. Uh, have you ever seen a tomorrow? Really? Have you ever seen a tomorrow? Because when tomorrow comes, it's still today. And what happened to all of those yesterdays? Are they still around? They're not here either. So that so you're you're worrying about something that does not exist. You may not live long enough to to, to see the thing you're worrying about. So why don't you be present? So John, that is a great point. I'm going to leave it at that. Good, even though it, it hasn't happened yet, good luck at court today because right, I, I don't want to see you going to jail in the future. And right. um, thank you so much for uh, informing us of all the dangers out there. And, and, and I'm glad you've kind of survived all the things you've gone through. All right. Thank you. Thanks, John. Talk to you soon. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.